Welcome. So, any questions tonight? Duval Chandra has a question. I'd like to talk about the getting, there's there's like an admonition, I don't know if it's spoken of, but we've heard it spoken, uh, that you don't want to get too close to the guru in that uh, you may see his material involvement and it may affect your faith, how he deals with, with things unrelated to the spiritual discipline and unrelated to uh, the direction he's giving you in spiritual life. He may sometimes become involved in affairs that could, could affect <coughs> your faith. Uh, I would just like to have some clarification on how to tread that water. Uh-huh. Related to uh, parm- uh, to uh, to uh, to Maharaj's question. That, that's all right. Um, there's a number of uh, things that could be said about that. There begin with an example that's often cited, in which the guru is compared to a fire, and um, this is an old example, so in times prior to electricity, um, and the idea being that uh, you cannot get too close to the fire, otherwise you get burned. But you cannot keep too far away from the fire, otherwise you cannot cook and you cannot have any heat. Hmm? So that addresses your, your question in a, in a sense, right? Um, and that said, the the issue at hand, I believe, becomes more complicated when the guru, when he or she is involved in things that might be required, for example, to... Uh, establish an institution. Hmm? I think the institutionalizing of the spiritual uh, current, if you will, is important because it enables us to take advantage of it. I've sometimes given the example of Sri Chaitanya, who's the, 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 uh, the uh, founder of our um, lineage, so to speak, of in antiquity, and um, how he has been described even cross-culturally by um, theologians of other uh, religious traditions to be the most complete and comprehensive embodiment of ecstasy and love of God that the world has uh, has seen, um, describing, as some have, and this is, again, from even outside of our own tradition and even outside of Hinduism, uh, accurately, um, given that he is a, a historical uh, figure in the sense of modern 
time and in history, and accounts of his personhood are 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 um, reliable, verifiable, um, historically speaking. He's not an ahistorical or mythohistorical person that uh, is said to exist before modern history is was was, was uh, a discipline and so forth. And um, and the so like in the example of the of Jesus of Nazareth, there are some witnesses, you know, there are a dozen witnesses or something like that, as to his his miraculousness, if you will, um, some some testimony, how what the veracity of it is, I suppose, is debatable um, by um, uh, uh, academically speaking and so forth. Uh, but um, in the case of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, there are quite a few more witnesses and, and numbers of uh, eyewitness testimony. As to uh, the the effect that the chanting, for example, of Krishna Nam had upon him and how he was, as I say, the embodiment of ecstasy, there's a whole a tome of a book entitled Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu by one of our um, one of the architects of our of our lineage, who sought to institutionalize the ecstasy of Mahaprabhu in a soft way by putting it into literature, hmm? explaining it. Hmm? I have compared him to like a great waterfall, like the Niagara Falls or something. You have to kind of stand back and just be in awe of it. But if you could make a lake out of its flow, then you could approach it, drink from it, bathe in it, take advantage of it, and so forth. So, um, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is one of, one such book that uh, one of the architects of our lineage, Rupa Goswami, uh, wrote, and in doing so in a soft way, I would say, institutionalized the ecstasy of Mahaprabhu and made it approachable and understandable. The book in particular is about Bhakti Rasa, or the emotional uh, and ecstatic uh, life, inner life um, of of love of God, emotions that arise not out of the mind hmm? Hmm? of likes and dislikes. I like this, I don't like that, and the corresponding emotional life and so forth. But a life beyond stilling the mind in the context of chanting, which is it's a, which is a kind of an expression of love, for example, of Krishna. If you love someone, you know, you you, you might sing about them, call their name, call my name, and I'll be there. So, um, what's in a name? Quite a bit. If you got his name, you could you could track him down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we you know we've been talking for I don't know the last couple of weeks about the name the divine logos and the efficacy of of, of embracing the divine logos in, in a systematic way, in a kind of a dharma of the name, a theology and a practice of chanting the name, something that, again, throughout all religious traditions is said to be sacred, the name of God, either so sacred you can't chant it, or uh, in the Jewish tradition, or in the beginning, it was the word, the name, and the na- name was one with him, as we find 
in the biblical tradition and throughout the Hindu uh, uh, traditions and so forth. And, um, so um, to hone that idea, an idea that 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 serves as common ground between diverse religious expressions, and which also has um, common ground with with secular life, in which the efficacy of sound is um, thought to be considerable. For example, nowadays, in the age in which we live, taking to the streets with picket signs and shouting and so forth can topple entire governments. The whole of the uh, Soviet Union in the 80s was toppled by people, there are other factors, but ultimately the people came on the streets and they chanted whatever their slogans were and so forth, and, and a very powerful regime was uh, dismantled, you could say, effectively by sound. Um, I saw not so long ago a video of uh, something that had been um, technologically developed, um, I forget where, by which it was a machine by which uh, through sound fire could be put out. So they showed it, the machine, it made a sound and they lit a little fire, put a sound and the fire went out. So it's an element when we have, we have in modern science, modern technology, we have kind of really examined the fire element, if you will, and elect electricity and exploited it in different ways and turned it into, you know, all types of things, modes of communication and so forth, probably most prominent um, sense, powering the world and and so on. Sound is another element. What is the power that lies in, in that? And then, of course, the, the Hindu tradition puts a lot of stock in, in that, the power of sound. So, at any rate, um, we find that uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu invoking the name hmm, of Krishna, uh, these ecstatic uh, uh, symptoms appeared within him. And these symptoms are described, they're external uh, symptoms of internal ecstasy that are quite uh, extraordinary. And in the book Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, for example, Jiva Goswami has helped us to understand that ecstasy. This symptom is, is a result of this, and this external symptom is uh, perspiring blood, for example, is an is a, is, it a, is, a, is, a, is a result of this, uh, the tears pouring from the eyes, like in bathing people in, the, in proximity. Um, this from chanting hmm, looks like pretty bad <laughs> in one sense, but it's Bhayabicha Jalahoi Bitare Anandamoy Krishna Premer Ad Bhutacharita. In the Bengali work of Chaitanya of Krishna's Kaviraj, he says, Bhayabisha Jalahoi. On the outside, this prem, love of Krishna, it looks terrifying, like poison. Bhaya, outside, Bisha Jalahoi, Bitare Anandamoy. But inside, it is Ananda. Krishna Premer Adbhuta Charit. This is the wonderful Adbhut Charit, the character of Prem. Hmm? So uh, you have to look carefully at it. 
underneath it to see what that's all about. So, so that ecstasy that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu so embodied, it was the accounts of it are are very extraordinary. Um, was philosophized about, theologized about by the Goswamis, and they located that ecstasy on the scriptural um, map and explained it and made it then approachable, if you will, by the common people, right? So this is a soft form of institutionalizing the ecstasy or the divine uh, current in the world, hmm? embodied as it was in this case in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. That was the work of a guru to do that, right? Rupa Goswami, he was one of the architects of the lineage, he he did that and others as well. We have quite a um, uh, considerable uh, f- um, edifice of canon, scriptural canon, hmm? bhakti shastras, if you will, um, um, all along these lines, which is then the first uh, form of institutionalizing that divine current that ecstasy, which otherwise might be difficult to understand. Christians, uh, 400 years later, um, when India was still under British rule, when they came to convert the Hindus from their pagan religion, excuse me, and started to study their scriptures and so forth, when they came across the person of Chaitanya, they thought, oh, he must have been epileptic. Hmm? But of course, our reply is, epilepsy is not contagious, and we found that his ecstasy was contagious and transferred to others. And said so we are ongoing, hundreds of years later, examples of that. So, at any rate, this kind of um, service, if you will, in to the to the community at large, to the humanity at large, on the part of the guru, the sharing of knowledge and so forth in the form of literature is a an, an institutionalization of that ecstasy that's difficult then to um, see in a relative light. Hmm? Whereas, comparatively, if taking the literature, I then decide to make an institution that um, seeks to um, help facilitate persons taking advantage of that literature and applying themselves in it, then other than just sitting and writing under a tree, as it might be, with my pen and meditating and so forth, uh, in a more contemplative type of a lifestyle, I might, or whoever the guru might have to, uh, in today's world in particular, get a mortgage hmm, for the building, raise funds, um, um, and any number of other things that a project like that requires, all of which are not in and of themselves inherently bhakti. Bhakti can be... uh, Siddha bhakti, sangha siddha bhakti. We can make things by association bhakti, by designation bhakti. 
In other words, okay, if I'm going to build a house, it's one thing. If I'm going to build a house and I build it for Krishna, I could turn building a house into Krishna for for Krishna into into bhakti. But it's the same effort. And so, it, when a guru is involved in that type of um, institutionalizing that people might take advantage of the current, then there is a greater chance for him or her to be seen in a relative light at times. Hmm? There's a saying that familiarity breeds contempt. So if you're doing things that I'm familiar with and I have done myself, hmm? I eat, he eats. Right? I've gotten a mortgage before. Hmm? I've built a house. In fact, I think I know how to build a house better than that. Hmm? And I would have bought property over there. And I don't know why that... So this possibility uh, arises because now we're in more of a relative um, realm rather than a more clearly absolute realm. Well, you could have built it like this. You could have built it smaller. You could have thought of that. You could... And of course, hindsight is always 2020 too. Uh, 2020 also. So, <laughs> uh, so, um, so there is that. This is where then that um, analogy of the fire, you know, comes into uh, in, into play um, in in the modern setting that we we, we find ourselves. Um, often, uh, perhaps more so than in um, ancient times, although the principle is still there. Hmm? Still, the guru is going to do some of the same things that you do. Like I said, he's going to eat. Hmm? He's going to bathe. He's going to do all the basic hygiene and uh, and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, um, uh, and, and you're going to have similarities. So the familiarity... With I do the things he does also, then can bring in an element of of, of, of relativity, and um, and therefore hmm, we're advised not to get too close, but not to stay too far, and we're to give another example to help us. Um, it's said that the the Murti, the uh, the deity of Krishna, or Narayan, uh, yeah, for example, in in the temple, hmm, is 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 not to be seen as stone, although it may be constructed, carved out of stone. Hmm? You may have to go and employ somebody to carve the deity and so forth, and then. But the, but then the deity is placed on the altar with certain rituals and so forth, and then we are taught to see through a certain eye, a philosophical eye, to see the deity and then approach in a particular way. And this brings a certain result that ultimately enables us to see the deity other, differently than ordinary people might see and have experience with the deity that ordinary people would not have. So um, similarly we need to view the guru with the philosophical eye hmm, in terms such that the relativity and the familiarity 
that's there, even if you're at a distance, like say, he eats, I eat, and there's some, some common ground there um, that we might uh, um, not let that shadow or overshadow what is his or her contribution, uh, what, uh, and of course, now it's, it's also the guru's um, uh, responsibility to try as best as possible to also uh, take that into consideration. He knows some disciples, some students can be closer. Some need to stay more at a distance in order that their faith will be um, um, nourished. Hmm? So he tries to, she tries to um, uh, um, employ that analogy and uh, you know take that that reality into consideration but you know it's it's it's, it's a um, it's a uh, kind of a, a tight rope of sorts if you if you will um, and there's another problem that can arise where you create enough distance either culturally or by age like if I'm from an entirely different culture you can't know me as well there's less familiarity. Hmm? If I'm much older than you, it's also then there's, there's some distance that's created, right? Um, and so then there can be some, uh, some as a result of that uh, distance, there can be a projection on the part of the disciple that makes the guru to be more than what the scripture says the guru is, and, and that can be that can be a problem on the other end. Your your our question is on the other on the other end of the spectrum. He sees the guru to be less than what he actually is. You can also see the guru to be more than what he is, and and then live in um, in kind of a, um, a fantasy of sorts that may um, in due course not enable you to understand the guru more fully in terms of his or her contribution in time in place and circumstance historically um, um, and um, and factor in what I mean to say is the the relativity so there's going to be relativity to the guru despite he is or she is representing the absolute Truth, because he's going to, she's going to represent it, of course, in the time and circumstance, and emphasize certain details and so forth. And so, um, if you get in your mind too, and in, in, in your thinking too too distant, and you you, and and then you start thinking, you know, like, okay, um, the guru is wearing glasses. He must be testing me because certainly he's perfect. And I, I, you know, why would he be wearing glasses if he's perfect? His senses are perfect. And then you get into this whole weird, you know, that's a problem. <laughs> can be a problem. I'm exaggerating the point, but I think you can, you can understand. So, <laughs> so. So, um, yeah, so there's some, again, I've often said there's, there's an art to or a um, skill uh, 
to sadhana. One aspect of sadhana bhakti is serving the guru, guru parashra, taking shelter of the guru. So there's there's an art to that. Hmm? And um, one has to become become skillful and understand these things to some some extent. So it's a good uh, point um, to uh, to bring up. Um, and I'm just speaking about it in a broad way that that we might look at it from different angles and be better equipped, you know, to deal with it and recognize where it's going in in one direction or another that is taking us off course. Either he's too high or he's too uh, ordinary. I mean, uh, take Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. There's a famous story how he was in the beginning starting his his institution in West Bengal and um, you know, West Bengal was undeveloped. There were still Bengali tigers running around in the area and so forth. So there they were. And um, he he had this idea to form a very kind of hard, if you will, institution, physical institution, um, to you know, in a way that hadn't been um, the uh, focus of previous teachers hmm, who were lesser on the uh, buildings and those type of facilities and more on the writing or just uh, uh, contemplative kind of uh, example. So he began to, and he was, of course, dealing with the British influence and the modern world, right? And so uh, he that was part of his, um, um, uh, big part of his consideration of how to proceed. So at any rate, he started to manage and organize and, you know, this and, that, this and that. And there was a fellow who was um, came to hear from him, and then he saw that he was managing. And then he, he thought, oh, is he managing? He left. Hmm? I think Pujapatridamar told me the story. I'm kind of shortening it, but the point is that he couldn't digest that seeing the guru acting in ways other than like, you know, feet doesn't touch the ground, so to speak, um, or whatever would as closely resemble that as as possible. You know, there's a saying, it's difficult to understand the Vaishnava. If you're a jnani or a yogi and you're living in a cave and you're a breath area, people think, well, this guy must be spiritual. But you could be a Vaishnava and do bhakti and employ all kinds of things from the world in Krishna service and look like, in that sense, materialist comparatively. Be worried about who's going to pay the bills for Radha and Krishna in their temple. Something like like, like a family man would be. Hmm? The yogi doesn't have those kind of concerns. So it's easier for them to think, you know, he's or she is just... Uh, uh, preoccupied with ordinary things to, to, to trace out the motive behind it's it's it's, it's difficult Vaishnavism is a little um, peculiar or different in that way of course it's a doctrine of love rather than a doctrine of, of knowledge unto itself love requires movement hmm? and um, knowledge may comparatively requires just sitting Love requires knowledge and moving. Anyway, I've talked about that before. Um, I won't go into it tonight. Mm -hmm. Knowledge requires sitting. Movement requires 
knowledge cancels out movement, movement cancels out knowledge, karma cancels out knowledge, knowledge cancels out karma, but love involves knowledge and and movement. And so it's love is difficult to understand, it knows no reason. So the difference is uh, that doesn't change with love of God. Hmm. It, that's why the Bhagavatam, which is a beautiful and the most prominent amongst the sacred texts of the Hindus, book on love of God, hmm, um, makes the statement that What is the verse? Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya Bhagavati Utamashloka Bhakti Bhagavati Nashtika. You have to study this book like really very carefully. After all, Krishna is described in the book as a lover of other people's wives, it would seem, on the surface. Goodness, that sounds rather um, peculiar and uh, a bad example. So, what's being said there, really? You have to go very deep inside. Pay close attention, and so we have to look at that and think Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was chanting the names of Radha and Krishna, and they're depicted in the Bhagavatam as kind of eloping lovers, if you will, parakya lovers, yet he himself had absolutely no interest in romantic life materially. How can you be preoccupied with thoughts about the romanticism of a couple and not be, have that play out in your own life. The opposite was being played out. Renunciation was coming from that. So you have to understand renunciation, moving away from the world, controlling the mind and controlling the senses is really only the first step in the direction of love because love involves not taking and also giving. Right? So renunciation is not taking to step back from the world. That's karma, not to take, then you don't owe. You can be peaceful. But love is a further step. Hmm? So um, to look at love, if you're a taker, hmm? it may be difficult to understand it. For what it is, it's easier to understand. Knowledge is the is the is the is the converse. Uh, it's it's stop. It's the stop taking. Okay, I'm taking. Stop that. Stop taking. Okay, I can I can figure that. I can get that. I'm taking something. Nothing really belongs to me. Okay, I should stop exploiting. And every time I take, I owe. I implicate myself. Right. I've take, taken from the environment because I think I'm this body and it, it has needs, and yours does, and so we're all competing um, to stay alive, if you will. Our, our sense of existence seems to be um, under a threat of, 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 of non-existence if we don't struggle with, with one another. And we can make a little pact, let's struggle together, you and me, against the world. So, But that's... What it involves, so that's the karmic uh, life, if you will. You can do it in a better way or a worse way, but it's 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 just two uh, forms of the same thing. You can be a blue-collar criminal or you can be a white-collar criminal. Hmm? But it's both criminal, if you will. It's both involves taking. Hmm? And so to stop taking, hmm, to stop exploiting, hmm, to give up, hmm, to 
conclude that less is more, and so forth. This is the move in, in, in a mystically into a into a kind of knowing that comes about in a reverse way, hmm. rather than by taking, arresting the thing and knowing it, conquering it, owning it, hmm. mastering the world, and so forth. Step back from it, hmm. right? Um, then to step back from trying to take the world, you can start to see the soul of the world and that it's you. Hmm. And this is kind of a mystical vision and so forth. But then to move from there to love. Hmm. So from the being absorbed in karma, it's difficult to understand love. Hmm. It's not all so easy for the jnani. These are the two polar opposites, to take and to give up. Take and give up. Hmm. In fact, we do that in the world. We take and then we give it up. And we take and we give up. Bog and tiag, bog and tiag. These are the two tracks on which the world runs, so to speak. Hmm. Um, one is about taking the world, one is about getting away from the world. Hmm. Right? Bhakti is not about getting away from the world. It's about loving Krishna. Hmm. And if, if things are... If we should accept things that are favorable for loving Krishna, we should reject things that are unfavorable. So, anyway, love is, is, is difficult to understand. So the Vaishnava Guru in particular hmm, may be uh, uh, difficult to, uh, to understand because there's a possibility he or she, as in the case of Bhakti Siddhanta, for example, starting a mission, was involved in all types of things. And to some extent, the Goswamis were too. I mean, Jiva Goswami was dealing with... Um, the um, documents of ownership over deities and temples and deeds of properties. And Rupa Goswami was a, the architect of the Radha Govinda temple where he made a blend of Muslim and Hindu architecture as if to say, let's get together here on the essentials, common ground, um, um, and so forth. So they were all, But at any rate... Um, yeah, all I can say is it is an issue, and it has to be. Um, uh, we have to protect ourselves, so to speak, from um, getting too close to the fire and getting burnt, and and then um, make sure we don't stay away too, too, to stay too far away. We won't get we won't get nourished. We won't we won't be able to cook and and um, and so forth. Um, so, that's uh, um, a little different than, than Marge's question is more about, his thought was more about how at times I have said that the, um, that the guru who's often thought of and depicted as the man who has everything, in one sense, right? from whom we can get what we could not get anywhere else. And we should give up everything to get it. Give it all to him. Hmm? He needs nothing. We should give it all to him. Um, uh, because it's, it's, not, it's not doing anything for us. Let's give it to him. See if he can use it in a way that will be in our interest and so forth. Um, so he's often looked as, kind of, as a kind of a fulfilled uh, person Hmm. But I often speak in a different way, as as being a guru, being more of a desperate uh, kind of a 
person, hmm? a desperate person, in uh, who who has been affected by Krishna Nam, and there's a famous verse of Rupa Goswami that is he 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 he, he, he through his pen is spoken by Purnamasi in the Lita Madhava where uh, she says she's the opening in the opening section of the book where she glorifies the the virtue and the power of Krishna's name. And she says, oh, what is the power of Krishna's name? These two syllables, if I chant these two syllables, if you chant these two syllables and they enter the courtyard of your heart and dance therein, my senses become immobilized or um, unable to interact with externally with sense objects. Hmm? And I've got a huge problem because I, the the amount of ecstasy contained in these two syllables, I cannot do justice to it with one tongue and two ears. So he's got a problem. Hmm? He's a desperate person looking for help. We think of the guru as looking to give help. He's the teacher. And that's a valid, you know, perspective. We need help. But like attracts like. Hmm? Hmm? So if you really need help, you're going to meet somebody who really, really needs help. Hmm? Hmm? That's such a desperate, uh, desperate person. Hmm? And then they were going to agree and form a pact, right? Hmm? And then, uh, uh, so, lend me your ears, <laughs> right? And lend me your tongues. Hmm? And together, uh, we look at Krishna to take it another step along as the supreme enjoyer. He is said to be Atmaram, self-satisfied. Hmm? Um, but that is a very superficial understanding of Krishna. Hmm? He ex- explains in Bhagavatam, in the ninth canto, to Durvas, hmm, who offended his devotee, Ambarish. It's Narayan speaking, but Krishna says the same thing and, and to a greater uh, extent, that um, this self, Atmara means self-pleasure, the pleasure inherent in the self of of Krishna hmm, is um, is is not um, I want to say uh, he finds it um, not not pleasing hmm, compared to hmm, the pleasure derived from interacting with his devotees. Krishna is called Rasa Raj, so his pleasure is Rasa. Rasa means there have to be the devotees to share in that. Hmm? He has this Atmananda, but his Atmananda is also termed Swarupananda, so it's the Ananda of his own Swarup. But what that is, is his, is his Swarup Shakti, which is his internal energy, is within his Swarup, and in that form he experiences Atmananda. Hmm? Krishna never goes. Krishna's Atmananda because he never goes outside of himself for pleasure. 
But his point is his self, properly understood, includes his Swarup Shakti. Hmm? You understand? He's not sep- ever separate from it. It's within him. Within him, it's it's called Swarupananda. When it is expressed outwardly, it takes the form of Radha. It's called that the bliss derived there is now Swarup Shakti Ananda. The Shakti has taken a it was within him through which he derives self pleasure is manifested externally and then the possibility of uh, enjoyment, bliss, ecstasy is increased such to such an extent that the by comparatively the Atmananda or Sarupananda is not pleasing. Hmm? It does nothing for him. Hmm? Something like that. Now, Krishna is never separate from his Sarup Shakti. He's never alone, to use Prabhupada's language. Svetashvatana Tarupanishad says, He is Rasa, Rasovai Saha. That means he is, he is enveloped in, embraced by, intertwined with his Sarup Shakti, the, the full embodiment of which, of course, is, is Radha. And there's a little Radha, a little bit of Radha in every every devotee, right? That is what she is Bhakti Devi, the goddess of, of Bhakti. Mm-hmm. So Krishna is the supreme enjoyer, but he's actually a desperate person hmm? by his own admission. And he really pours it on to Durvas. You don't understand. Because hmm? Durvas defended his devotee. You don't understand. Without my devotees, I'm nothing. Hmm? I have no happiness whatsoever. Though hmm? so offend my devotee is non-different from offending me. It's worse if you could separate the two. Hmm? Hmm? So Krishna's really, um, and Krishna in Braj in particular, he is a desperate um, uh, person in the final analysis. I mean, he's got his devotees, so he's okay. <laughs> but, but. We often talk about the separation that the devotees feel from Krishna, but it's not that Krishna doesn't feel the separation from his devotees. Hmm? When Krishna can't meet with with Radha, he needs friends like Subal to whisper her name in his ear, hmm? and through her name give him some uh, uh, relief and, and union through the form of the, her name. With, with her in his otherwise uh, separation. He, he's pathetic, pathetic, actually. So e- even in that setting, where there is union with the devotees and separation, union and separation, this um, um, the desperate nature of, of the supreme enjoyer is, is apparent. So the guru is the representative of, of Krishna. Hmm? So to understand properly, then he's a desperate person also. Hmm? Desperate. Need of help. So he takes the name of Krishna. He needs to have help to chant it, to take advantage of it. And we chant together and something comes at each time and and we talk about it. And and in the Gita, Krishna says, Bodayantas parasparam tushantichāramantichā. So there's this Parasparam means like mutually. Um, again, the idea of hearing and chanting. I'll chant, you listen, you chant. I'll listen. But what did you hear? Hmm? That's what I heard. And then discuss it and, and, 
and go into the the, uh, the, the theological and philosophical plumb the depths of the ground out of which this uh, ecstasy is is arising. And in Gita speaks about a mutual enlightenment. So it's not, for example, that the guru sits and gives the talk and everybody becomes enlightened hmm? and nothing happens to him or her. Hmm? In that setting, the guru may say things due to the interest of the audience and the questioning and the earnestness that he's never said before, that finds insightful and, and enlightening. Hmm? And in Prem, which is our ideal, Prem Prayojan, the nature of this Prem is said to be full, complete, and ever-increasing at the same time. Hmm? Now, that doesn't fit between the ears. I realize that. But it's good that there are things that don't fit between the ears, that aren't just part of a, uh, a product of the, the, the intellect, which is never decisive hmm, in a comprehensive sense. There can always be a competing logic or reasoning to go on debating an, an, a particular issue. Hmm. And even if you could comprehensively address one issue by logic, the whole picture you cannot address in a way that you could become fully satisfied hmm, or satisfy the whole world. Hmm. So anyway, we need a transrational uh, uh, method uh, for that, such as the chanting and so on and so forth. Um, but um, um, at, at any rate, mutually enlightening one another. So Guru is uh, is is always also learning hmm? and experiencing on another uh, level the same teaching and what it may mean to you when he speaks may have other implications that, that dawn that he can't even save that for the next time, you know. Hmm. Um, so this is an ongoing affair that properly understood, it, 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 it does away with the distance between the guru and the disciple, in a sense, in a way that, that love can. Hmm? In other words, by love, you can get close, as close as you possibly could, could get, and there will not be any um, contempt. Uh, familiarity brings, breeds contempt, right? But in love, that, that, is, uh, that, that possibility is, preclu is precluded. It, is precluded. It, it, it can't happen. Hmm? Um, so, uh, this is the kind of relationship we want between uh, uh, guru and disciple, and ultimately, and so such, you know, these kind of topics are healthy and useful uh, for us. Um, and, 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 and love also, with regard to your question, love also resolves all, all contradictions, right? In love, one sees the faults of another as ornaments. There's the famous saying, mother called her blind son, named him Padmalochan. Padmalochan means beautiful eyes like the lotus. A blind son doesn't have beautiful eyes. He needs like sunglasses, right? So because the eyes aren't pretty, but she had a different subjective perspective. Padmalochan. So love turns faults uh, into, into ornaments. Hmm?
Hmm. Krishna's faulty. What can be said? He's a thief. <laughs> Misbehaving in his childhood and so forth. These are all lessons to be learned from this, right? Hmm? Um, We don't, of course, a guru shouldn't be a thief, but but then again, he's trying to beg, borrow, or steal, as Bhaktivinoda Thakur said, the nectar of the name of Krishna. And he's in, employing us in such criminal activity <laughs> to, to, assist, to assist him. Hmm? Um, so... So I, I think this, uh, you know, along those lines, uh, there's a famous uh, lecture of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur on the day of his uh, birthday when his students built a big uh, seat for him and garlanded him and so forth. And he gave a famous talk uh, that was um, humble as a blade of grass, something like that. And he said, here I am sitting up here on this big seat like a big brute and everyone is uh, honoring me. But... Uh, among other things, he went on to say that actually what I see is that all my guru is Bhakti Vinod, and he has sent all of you to teach me hmm, and to keep me engaged by asking me questions, and and then you ask a question, and then I have to think about that, respond, and some then some new insight may come, and so forth, and and so in this way he. He described himself as in, as dependent upon, uh, in the loving sense, um, his, his 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 students and saw them as his gurus. Hmm? So the guru sees the disciples as his own teachers. Who is the best guru? He or she who is the best servant hmm? in bhakti. Hmm? So this is a very good point to. Uh, Understand uh, who's who serves most, uh, whatever diligently. Or the more you serve, the more you have developed a serving ego. The more you're able to teach, embody, and teach service, hmm? which uh, may very much involve abandoning our own ideas about how things might be done and what. And well, let's just do it his way because we because we we love him. We may think I wouldn't do it that way, but. If you love him, you don't think like that. Hmm? Oh, he wants to do it that way. All right, we do it that way. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, and it, it could be a bumpy ride at times, but uh, but that's all right. If it's affectionate, if you hold on tight, then <laughs> it could be exciting. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, some thoughts on on that. Does that help? Yes. Maharaj, you mentioned that. Uh, Guru has responsibility to um, be aware of the disciple close, and the disciple has responsibility. And it made me think that we have responsibility to each other to not reveal our doubts to people who are potentially of weaker faith, and you know, therefore hurt their um, creeper and their relationship. You know, if we have doubts, then to go to advanced devotees, but not... That's true. Yeah, I often said that we should sit before the guru and doubt. That sounds like, what? 
You're supposed to have faith. But my teaching is different. <laughs> you should sit before the guru in doubt and then voice your doubt. And if he or she can answer your doubt and 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 dispel it hmm, by scriptural logic and invoking the 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 knowledge of the tradition and how it would answer that if you're a member of the tradition and so forth then you go forward because faith suspicion leads to suspension your faith is the animating principle in life right um, so sit and doubt but don't just sit and doubt voice the doubt some sit voice the doubt express it uh, you know the worst question is the one you don't ask hmm? that you think is too stupid but it doesn't. But it keeps bothering you, nonetheless. And then you don't. You don't want to. You don't want to show your ignorance. You know. You're, you want to show your ignorance that it could be. You could overcome it. Hmm? And um, of course, mistakes are 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 some of the best things that happen to us because we we, we observe them carefully. We can we can learn from them. Hmm? You don't make any mistakes, and you maybe won't learn anything. So. So anyway, so sit in doubt hmm, and express doubt. Ask, and then if the guru can't remove the doubt, then you then you, you don't have any reason to be there. Hmm? Right? Then again, how to remove the doubt, what constitutes an answer to the doubt um, is relative to, uh, to to the tradition. And, 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 um, and so if I can't answer your doubt, then maybe you should be in another tradition. Hmm? But if you're a Godia person, or you're interested in it, and I can answer your doubts, and there's a way to answer them. In other words, we have a standard of knowledge that we can refer to. It's not just make it up as you go along. So there's a certain um, body of sacred texts, the Hindus, that we refer to. And, and just like in a case of law, you, you go before the judge and say, well, according to this case and at such and such date, in that case at such and such date, the law said this. Now, given these circumstances, which are slightly different, still this law applies and that applies, and therefore I think he should be not guilty. And if the other guy goes, well, I think and I feel that he should be guilty, well, the other, he's not going to win the case, right? So there's a standard, there's a, there's, a, there's a body of knowledge, and it's dynamic in its scope and its nature. So the, the sacred texts are not some dead body of literature and sometimes the scientific materialism tends to present it like scientists, science is dynamic and always open to new things. Not true. Hmm? Not true. Scientists, that's the theory. Science may be, but scientists are not. Hmm? Scientists are human. And, and I said, a, a, a white sari in this, or a white dhoti in this setting is more objective than a white smock in the laboratory because you have to be detached in culture detachment, which is where objectivity comes from, stepping back from your feelings, your emotions, and what does the sacred text say? And I'll follow that. So, um, no, uh, yes. Okay, to some extent, science is open to just looking for the truth and following the facts wherever they go. But unfortunately, the facts, what goes along with the facts is, as as they're presented in, is it as they're presented is an interpretation of their 
implications. Here's the facts. Now we're getting we're getting really to the core, the virgin state of nature and reality, because we've got facts that we've drawn from a from a closed environment. Hmm? pertaining to a particular issue, we've got consistent data, and so we're getting now to, the, like I say, the vir virgin, just what nature is, what reality is, but we're still left with interpreting the data. <laughs> That's why Heisenberg, I think it was, said, you know, we don't really know the nature of matter, we know the nature of our interpretation of, ma of matter. And then you interpret it in a particular way, and that you know maybe relative to your human bias and human sensibilities, uh, it might be interpreted quite differently from an animal's perspective, what the implication of it was, and so forth. And uh, so you know, it's a very narrow uh, way of trying to come up with the whole uh, limited way of coming up with the whole truth, and then of course. You know, scientists are make a living out of it, and so then there are certain. Who was it that decades ago? What's that famous book? Thomas Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn. What was the name of his book? Um, anyway, he wrote a famous book about paradigm shifts and how the scientific community gets absorbed in a particular paradigm, a way of looking at things, and then. What happens is that that starts to become part of the employment, the education system. It's built into everything. And so if some new facts come that contradict the paradigm, there's a tendency to to push them aside and and to make a paradigmatic shift. There's a, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot involved. Just like to make a paradigmatic shift from using oil hmm, to uh, you know not using fossil fuels, well, it's, there's, an, there's, a, there's a whole economic consideration, right? Uh, many, many factors. And so some people resist, not on the basis of the knowledge and the facts, but on the, on the implication of how it will be troublesome to me. I'll have to move. I might make, uh, might be out of, my, my industry might be out of business, uh, you know, so on and so forth. So, um, so, uh, a lack of, uh, how do we get to that point? Objectivity there. Hmm? Right? And I don't know how it got there, but. but predispositional bias. Yeah, there's a predispositional bias, but, uh, but, but for the, um, uh, the de oh yeah, so for the devotee's way of knowing, then, the devotee uh, relies on a, on a supernatural uh, source to refer to that manifests in the form of the sacred texts. Now these sacred texts are looked at by the materialistic community as old dead books that have these, it's fixed this way and religion can't change. That is to just, just very inaccurate. It doesn't, it's, it, it doesn't uh, address what we call theology. Theology is exploring the implications of the texts, what they mean may, may mean beyond their Literal words. Uh, there was another scientist I recently quoted in the book I'm writing. What did he write? Uh, who was he? Uh, Nobel laureate. I can't remember now. But he he, he cited how 
religious traditions, and this is you know from the scientific community, that they they speak in a different way, poetically, mythically, uh, and so forth, but they don't. They're, they're, what they describe is not any less of a truth. It's a truth that can't be explained other than by some approximation through another through this type of language. Hmm? Poetic language seeks to expand the world and its possibilities that such that it will conform more to the to the self that that is not ultimately constrained by time and space. Hmm? Uh, so I mean that's a big discussion. But the point is that the sacred texts properly understood are themselves a converse part of a conversation with the absolute. So revelation, you know, the guru is not just this is the way it is. Revelation is not this is just the way it is. But it's like human life is a question, why? Meaning, purpose, value, why? And the scripture replies back hmm, with an answer. Consciousness in human life is speaking in a way that in, in the animal life, plant life, it's not. Hmm? It's more encumbered in that situation by the material, by, by, by nature, hmm? by the natural world. Human life, it's start, the self is starting to come to the fore, so we, we, we ask these questions. Horses aren't asking, why didn't you feed me? Just, I'm hungry. Hmm? Why? Uh, but human beings are asking this question. That question can't be answered by nature because it's 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 not a how question, quantitative question of nature. It's a qualitative question. So it has to come from another source. That's what scripture represents, the, the consciousness world. Hmm? And now it's going to speak in a way that's just not exactly the way the same language as the as the use in the quantitative world. Hmm? It's 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 much more like mystical and subtle and nuanced and so forth. And so the sacred texts they have ongoing explanations. Just like if you have a flower and you shed light on it with the light of your explanation, it opens, it opens, opens fuller, fuller, fuller. So there's all, it's not true that religion is just fixed with its religious books. These are the rules, can't change. That's the way it is. And science is just open to all kinds of possibilities and changes. Properly understood, the scripture is just like, like the law books, which are new laws are always being written based on the previous laws and the new circumstances which arise. So new circumstances are always arising, and then you have to interpret the scripture to apply to the new circumstance, you have to use reason in relation to revelation. That's what theology is. Hmm? Philosophy is, 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 is reason unhinged from revelation. Theology is reason hinged to revelation. It's not, it's not that revelation is do away with reason. Hmm? <laughs> it's reasoning about the limits of reason, of reason and, and that there's another source to draw from and, and to reason about and so forth. So, properly understood, the spiritual um, perspective is a very dynamic perspective on the world, and it accepts that new things are always happening in the world. The material world is always full of new things to discover. How can it not be? When there are planets that are, you know, 
zillions of miles away. How do you know what's going on there? You're going to go there. You're going to find new circumstances. And if your books are so dynamic that they can apply even to those circumstances, which requires an understanding of them, their universality that can be presented such that it's clear that it pertains, it talks about things that don't change hmm? and how to apply them to the ever-changing aspects of the world. I mean, this is exciting. Hmm? So, um, so there's a kind of like, you know, childishness to the teacher hmm? in, a, in a candy store of like the scriptures. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about it now. There are going to be questions. What's, what's going to be? What's going to be asked? What will, what will we say? And and so forth. Um, so it's it, it gives a different kind of picture sometimes than than we have uh, ordinarily, which might distance us from the very concept of the guru being kind of ominous, you know, and uh, the uh, what would you say like dictatorial, authoritarian. Hmm? No, authoritarian. You know, it, actually, the guru gives authority. Hmm? Gives authority. He puts the holy name in your hands, and then, how's it working? <laughs> What's happening? This is Prabhupada said. I gave out the holy name to people, and then I saw how it, it, it worked in them, and then they came up with suggestions, and I followed them. That's how he ran his movement. I gave them the holy name in New York, and they said. Prabhupada, we should have a temple in San Francisco. He didn't even know where San Francisco was. I said, okay. Krishna must be inspiring them. So we go to San Francisco. And that's how he expanded his, his movement. So he put trust and confidence in the name and its effect. So, of course, he could, he, sometimes he realized, hmm, Okay, that wasn't good advice. You know, he saw he saw Babananda once, Ramananda dancing in a particular way during the kirtan. He said, and I thought Babananda's got the got the the ball up, and then I realized, oh, he was just it was just his concoction. <laughs> it wasn't that. So, but uh, yeah, this is a much um, yeah, kind of an important uh, type of discussion in the modern world where. This, uh, you have a democratic, um, we, 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 the Vedic culture comes out of a monarchy. That's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Monarchy, you know. But it all depends who the leader is, doesn't it? Right? And, and there are some many benevolent uh, monarchs, I, I'm sure, that, that, that under whose uh, guidance people were very um, inspired and so forth. And, and we can see that under democracy, there, there are, there's all kinds of oppression that, that can happen. You could elect somebody that, you know, is a problem. <laughs> it's possible, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, so, uh, so many uninformed people, uneducated people, may, you know, would be, which is probably the majority of people, uh, could could make a wrong decision, hmm? and then you have to live with it, right? So. Um, so, but but anyway, in a democratic society or in a capitalist society, as well, where individuality is prided and be your own self and don't listen to anybody, you do it your way, and uh, like that advertisement I saw the shoe store and it was just these footprints just walking, you know, 
into nowhere. Walk your own path, you know. <laughs> Give me a pair. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to create myself, be what I am, you know, whatever that is. I'm going to find out, you know. And I don't need anybody to tell me, kind of. A thing. Meanwhile, you know, buy the shoes, you know, you've just been hoodwinked into buying. So, <laughs> you've just been completely manipulated by corporate uh, structure and uh, Google and everything. You know exactly what you're going to think and then pretending that you're an individual and so forth. So, that happens as, as well. So, anyway, in that kind of environment, the idea of having a, a guru who teaches you, and so it's, it seems like that, that ain't going to work. And then there are bad represent, misrepresentations of guru who don't understand the things they were bringing up here, and who don't, gurus who don't feel like that, and you are actually exploiting and, you know, in want of followers, makes them feel good, and, and, uh, and, and so forth, don't have the required. Uh, knowledge and detachment, and then it shows up in ways that are unbecoming and so forth at times in, in you know, in different traditions. Um, so, you know, you get a bad, bad, bad name too, but there can only be, you know, as many mm, false gurus as there's one real guru. You can't have a false guru unless there's a real, real guru. Hmm? So, so some onus is on us to search and sincerely, and 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 like attracts like. So if you're really really desperate, somebody just wrote to me and said, "How can we get rid of all these like um, rock star gurus and find a real humble, you know, gurus?" I just said, "Seek, you know, and you will find." I told him. He said, "That sounds kind of like an empty response." I said, "You know, I put the onus on you, you know." Are you looking for that with exclusively in your life, with, at the exclusion of any other pursuit? The thing you want would warrant, would correspond with that kind of approach to the matter. If you're not doing that, you know, maybe, maybe that's the problem. There's not Bhakti Siddhanta said there's no shortage on God's side to reveal. There's a shortage here of customers for wanting what He's actually uh, about. Hmm? Bhagavan Shri Krishna Kijai, Guru Parampara Kijai, Bodh Premanand. Bodh Premanand.